Can I encourage you to turn your Bibles to Romans 5? I'm sure you'll find it a great help as we look at this together. We're looking today at the, the second Adam, and this is part two. We started last week at looking at verses 12 to 17, and tonight, this morning we're looking at verses 18 in the end. Now, last week, in looking at Jesus as the second Adam, we began with the words of John Henry Newman, uh, who lived two centuries ago. And today we're going to be a bit more up to date, and we're going to begin with the words of Matt Papa, a modern hymn writer. And this is what he has written in one of his hymns. Christ the true and better Adam, Son of God and Son of Man, who when tempted in the garden never yielded, never sinned. He who makes the many righteous brings us back to life again. Dying, he reversed the curse, then rising, crushed the serpent's head. And I'll just summarize what we're looking at here, how Jesus is described as the second Adam come to undo the work of the first Adam when he led people into sin. Now, quick recap what we looked at last week. First of all, we looked at how Adam and Jesus were introduced. We think particularly how sin came into the world through Adam when he ate of the forbidden fruit. Death came because of this sin, and death spreads to all people because we share in Adam's corruption. We're twisted by sin and are sinners ourselves, and we share in Adam's guilt. He was our representative when he sinned, We sinned with him. Now, the good news is that Adam is not the end of the story. In verse 14, at the end of it, speaks about how Adam was a type of one to come. There's one to come who would be a representative like him, but would achieve where Adam failed. The second thing we considered last time was Adam and Jesus contrasted. We think of trespass versus abounding grace, where Adam, he brought sin, where Jesus brings grace. Condemnation versus justification, we're condemned by the sin of Adam, but we're justified, declared right with God through Jesus. And how death reigns through Adam, but we can reign in life through Jesus. We can know the victory, be more than conquerors, as Paul says, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's what we're thinking about the first part of this section about Jesus as the second Adam. But today we're going to finish the chapter, and this will probably be our last of our sermons in Romans for a period of time. We'll take a wee break from it. But today we're going to look at how Adam and Jesus are compared. Adam and Jesus compared. Now, Adam and Jesus, of course, are not the same, different in so many ways. We've looked at But in regards to the roles they play in history, there are similarities regarding their importance. Similarities in what they do, similarity in what they achieve. And as we think of how they are compared and similar, the first thing we see is one act here in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, In life, we know that one action, even one decision, can have tremendous consequences, can make a a major difference, either good or bad. Maybe the act is a decision to emigrate to 
America or Australia, which people made so many made years ago, and maybe that action totally transformed that family, hopefully maybe for the better. Or we can think of how one act of violence, think of situations where maybe uh, during the Troubles a, a father was attacked and injured, he could never work again, had to be cared for the rest of his life. We think of how one action has very dreadful consequences. And so, in speaking here, it is saying that one action of Adam, one action of Jesus, has tremendous consequences. And in this verse, we're thinking about the two most significant actions of history. The two most significant actions that have ever taken place. The action of Adam and the action of Jesus. So let's think about Adam's action here in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. One action of sinning, one action of trespassing, one action of breaking God's commandments brought the whole human race under condemnation. You're thinking last time how we have all sinned in Adam. Adam, when he was being tempted in the garden of Eden, and he was promised so much by the devil, promised how he'd be like God, he promised liberty and knowledge, so much blessing if he listened to the devil instead of listening to God. He never could have imagined how his action would bring such terrible consequences for billions of people who would live after him. Billions of people are today in hell because of Adam's sin. And this warns us, of course, of the, the danger of temptation and how we don't know when tempted what will be the consequences of our sin. A friend of mine, who's a youth fellowship leader, speaking to young people, and he was always very wise with his advice, or most of the time, but uh, when he was speaking to young people, and if someone cuts you off when you're driving, and you know that you just want to hit the horn, give a good blur at them. And he would say to the young people, you know, if you're going to hit that horn, you never know what would be the final consequence. And we can think of situations of road rage, of violence, and even murder, which have happened from things like that. You never know what are the results of it. And you know, if we sin, we do not know what will be the final results of our sins. The devil teaches us that sin is a small thing. Listen, sin is serious. Now, we can never understand this world that we live in except by understanding the consequences of Adam's first trespass. We're all under guilt. We're all under corruption due to his sin. Sin is devastating. But then we see Jesus' actions here also in verse 18. It says, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So as in Adam's one action, terrible trouble came, Jesus' action turned the whole picture around. Jesus' act of righteousness has to be his death on the cross that's been spoken about here. And this action brings justification, brings life. Adam's actions bring us all under guilt, condemnation, and death. 
and the only hope is not to be changed, is the action of the second Adam on the cross, which brings deliverance and brings us into a forgiven state. We all, by nature, are children of the first Adam, if you Watch the Narnia series to talk about the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. It's getting across that message that indeed we are the children who have inherited the traits of our first parents. So we're all by nature under the first Adam, but in salvation, what happens is people are changed from being under the first Adam to coming to be under Jesus, the second Adam, which puts them in a totally different situation. D.L. Moody was the great... American evangelist from Chicago. One time he was going to speak at a gospel meeting and as he came to the door of the church where he was going to speak, there was one of the wee children, one of the wee street urchins, you would say, was outside and looking very upset. And Moody went and spoke to him and said, what's wrong? And he says, they won't let me into the church. And probably they had bad experiences from some of these homeless kids. D.L. Moody, who was wearing a, a long coat, he says to the young boy, just, just grab hold of my coattail. And there the young fella has coattail like as if he's following a king or a bride. He marches in holding Moody's coattail right up to the front of the church, right into the pulpit, and he sat down beside Moody. And the thing is, we are all following the coattail. We're all holding on to the coattail of one of, or two, of two people. Either we're still holding on to the coattail of Adam, which leads to judgment and condemnation, or we have let go of that and grabbed hold of the coattail of Jesus, which brings us into God's grace and to glory. So who are you holding on today? Are you holding on to Adam, holding on to sin? Are you holding on to Jesus, holding on to righteousness? So, the one action. And then, secondly here, there's the one man here in verse 19. For, if, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Here, the, the focus the in, is on the influence of one person. The action of one person can impact so many. And speaking of Adam, it speaks of one man's disobedience. One man's disobedience caused all people to become sinners. One man brought all people under corruption and guilt. Now, we cannot understand who we are as human beings unless we consider who we are in Adam. We are, because we are descendants of Adam, we are by nature sinners. And if people don't accept that, if people don't understand that, people will not understand who they are. They'll not make sense of who they are. Uh, this is true the whole LGBT thing. If you listen to people who have some sort of biblical understanding who are gay, they'll say, God made me this way. That's what they'll say. So I can live this way because God made me this way. 
I was speaking one time to Sam Albury, I was at a conference, Sam Albury, who's a well-known Church of England minister who himself struggled as a young man with same-sex attraction. And I remember asking him, how do we respond when people say, God made me this way? He says, well, we have to understand who we are through Genesis 1 and 2, which speaks of how we are made by God, made in the image of God. But he says, we also have to understand ourselves through Genesis 3. Yes, we were made by God, made in the image of God, but we have been corrupted, messed up, all of us, every single one of us. We have been corrupted by sin. So the one man, Adam, we have inherited his nature, we have heard that sin, we have inherited this corruption, we're messed up. None of us, sexually or otherwise, none of us are perfect. None of us are what we should be. Sin of the one man has messed us up. But then we have, secondly here, one man's obedience. It says here about how through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, as we think of one man's obedience, I don't know where your mind goes to, but my mind goes immediately to Philippians chapter 2. Do you know that great chapter, a great passage uh, you'll know it well. It says in verse 5, Paul says, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count the equality of God a thing to be grasped or held onto, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed in him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and on the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says Jesus deserves all the honor. Jesus deserves all the praise. Why? Why does Jesus deserve all this honor, all this? Because he was obedient to God, even unto death. There has only been one man who has been perfectly obedient in his life, and obedient all the way to the cross, and that, of course, is Jesus. And what we're told here is that Jesus' obedience all the way to the cross through this one man, righteousness comes to many. And so, in Adam and in Jesus, we can see the difference that one man makes. One man brings all people under sin and guilt and judgment. But one man, Jesus, brings those who trusted him, many people, to righteousness. Guilt through the one man. Salvation through the one man. And I hope that makes it clear to you that salvation is not to be found in a church, it's not to be found in a religion, it's not to be found in what we do. Salvation is to be found in a person, the man who is also God, Jesus Christ, the second Adam. One man messed it all up for everyone. 
One man has come to put it all right, to form a new society, a new community, a new people. Jesus is that man. Jesus is our only hope. So there's one action, there's one man, and then there is abounding in verse 20. And I think as Paul has been teaching us, I think Paul's now getting excited. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now remember, the Jews absolutely delighted in the law. They loved the law. They saw the keeping the law as the way of salvation. And Paul argues, you've got it wrong. You don't understand what the purpose of the law one of the main purposes of the law is to make us aware of our sin, to increase the guilt that's in our lives. Now, the law is not a ladder to climb us so we climb to heaven. The law is a signpost to point us to Jesus. The law makes it clear what God requires of it. And when people disobey what God has made clear, we become more guilty because of our sin. And so the law doesn't make it better. The law makes it worse. If a child, I don't know if this happens in your house, but if a child is told to do something, now if a child is genuinely, was a bit unclear about they were, what they were instructed to do, okay, you can have a bit of leniency with it. It's not just as serious if they were confused, if it was unclear. But when a child has been told for the 93rd time to tidy their bedroom, there's no wriggle room. When it has been made clear, the guilt is clear. And Paul is saying the law has made it clear to mankind what God requires. And therefore, when people hear the law, when people hear the word of God, and continue to refuse to obey it, their guilt increases. Here's a scary thought for you if you're not a Christian. You're going to leave this building today more guilty before God than you came in if you don't respond. Because the more you hear what God says, the more guilty you are. Later on in Romans, Paul will actually take it a bit further when he speaks about the law and how the law actually causes people to be sinful. Not because there's a problem with the law, but the problem in people's hearts. It's, a, it's the old example of a, a lift in a tar block or somewhere. And say there are two lifts in a tar block and inside one lift it's, there's nothing written, but on the other lift it says, do not write on the walls. Which lift will end up with the more graffiti? The one that says, do not write on the wall. And Paul speaks of how when we're told not to do certain sins, we're immediately thinking of those sins. Because of our corrupt nature, even that which is good, God's law, arouses sinfulness in us. But the wonderful truth here is what Paul is saying is that while sin increased, guilt increased, God's grace increased all the more. As the problem grew, so the solution that appeared was so much more glorious. 
And of course, this grace, this mercy, this goodness of God abounds to his greatest heights at the cross of Calvary. This is seen, first of all, in the willingness of Jesus to forgive. Jesus, who had been beaten quite a few times. Jesus, who had been mocked constantly. Jesus, who had his back whipped several times. Jesus, who had a crown of thorns placed on his head. Jesus, who was forced to carry that cross. Jesus, who was nailed to that cross. Jesus said of those who did this, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, those Roman soldiers, those Jewish leaders, if several days earlier Jesus had said to them, Father, forgive them. That was wonderful grace. But now that they've done these terrible acts against Jesus, the level of grace is increasing when he says, Father, forgive them. That is a more amazing action of grace. But also, grace abounds at the cross to the lengths that Jesus goes to in order to forgive. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. What does it mean when Jesus was made sin? Jesus who had never committed a sin in his life. Every sin that the people who would be saved have ever committed was placed on Jesus at the cross. Every sin of those who would come to trust in Jesus, their every sin was placed upon him. And as he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken because of the sin of his people. And the more his people sinned, the more he had to endure. He experienced immeasurable infinite suffering of wrath on the cross. We can't imagine what he went through when it went black. It wasn't the physical pain. It was something much more. When the sky went dark, a sin increased. The grace in bringing salvation grew. In the Old Testament, when people brought an animal for sacrifice, their hands were placed on the animal's head as a sign that they were placing their sin on the animal. And the animal would die in their place. And our only hope of salvation is that we place our hands on the head of Jesus, on the shoulders of Jesus, and say, Jesus, take my sin. And that's our only hope because where our sin grew, has grown and grown, the answer grows. Jesus takes it if we will trust him. If we'll trust him. So grace is abounding. And then the final thing we see is reigning here in verse 21. And Paul says, the purpose of all this grace is so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, this verse is very similar. You go back to verse 17. 
For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying here, sin reigns in death. Sin is victorious and it brings people to death. That's the purpose of sin. That's what's the devil's purpose of sin. So that indeed that people would be destroyed by sin. Sin and death cannot be separated. But on the other hand, the grace that's in Jesus Christ leads to eternal life. In verse 17, Paul spoke about life. Now here in this final verse, 21, he speaks about eternal life. He speaks about a life that can never be taken away. He speaks about a life in glory that is more wonderful than we can ever imagine. But there's a key element here for grace to bring eternal life. We need to receive something in order to have eternal life through the grace of Christ. Do you know what it is? Look at verse 21. What is the key element we need to have eternal life? So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For us to have eternal life, we have to become righteous. We have to become right with God. And we can only become right with God through Jesus. His perfect life, his sacrifice on the cross being applied to us. You see, God just cannot ignore your sin. Many people think, well, God's a wee bit like a, a very kind and maybe doting grandfather who will just say, Ach, leave the way alone. Uh, Mum and dad, why is it that uh, strict parents become such soft grandparents? Uh, maybe one day I will know. But, uh, but you can imagine the situation. Uh, the child has done something wrong. They run to granda and granda says, oh, leave the way alone. And many people think God is like that. He'll, he'd be just like a doting granda and say, oh, leave them alone. Just forget about their sin. Just forget about it. You see, the problem for God, if we can put it this way, is God is just, God is righteous. God cannot just say, oh, let's forget about sin. Part of his perfect righteous nature is that indeed all sin has to be punished. And if we're going to go to glory, if we're going to have eternal life, we have to become righteous. And that can only happen through Jesus. His perfect life, his death, dealing with our sin, being applied to us, as we come to faith and salvation. A big question here for every one of us. You're going out that door today. Where are you heading to? Yes, I know you're heading home, but where are you in the road to? Eternal life or eternal death? What makes the difference? Well, from this verse we see what makes the difference is what is reigning in our lives. If sin, going your own way, doing your own thing, if sin is reigning in your life, you're on the road to eternal death. Even if you said a prayer asking for forgiveness, if sin is reigning in your life, you're on the road to eternal death. But if the grace 
the new life, the salvation of Jesus Christ. Yes, we're not perfect, but we're different. If grace is reigning in your life, then you're on the road to eternal life, to heaven forever. So who is ruling over you? Who is your king? Is it sin or grace? Is it yourself or is it Jesus? I had to put up a Man City flag. Uh, and the deal was if whoever won the FA Cup, their flag would stay up. And so people said to me, I like your flag. And I said, I don't like that Man City flag. But eventually I talked my daughter to let it come down and we replaced it with a Jesus is King flag, which is a lot nicer. What's flying over your heart? Is Jesus is king? Is grace the flag that's flying over your life? Only when that is the case are we on the road to eternal life. One Adam leads to sin, death, and destruction. The second Adam leads to righteousness, life, salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you so much for Jesus. We rejoice today that he is the second Adam. And where the first Adam sinned and messed up and brought this world under that sin and condemnation, we thank you that the second Adam has come to bring us to righteousness, to salvation, to eternal life. Oh, Father, this passage just reminds us what Christianity is about. It's all about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, and us coming to embrace him. Oh, Father, may we be all about Jesus. May we find in Christ your mercy. Oh, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.